You are now tuned into The Point, the radio show that explores the Bible, studies its meaning, and affirms your faith with solid Bible teaching. The Point is sponsored by Grace Point Missionary Baptist Church of Early Texas. Grace Point meets for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m. Grace Point meets at the Early Chamber of Commerce while their new worship facility is under construction. More information can be found online at pointtolife.wordpress.com or by mailing Grace Point Missionary Baptist Church at P.O. Box 3134, Early Texas, 76803. That's Grace Point Missionary Baptist Church, P.O. Box 3134, Early Texas, 76803. And now, with this week's study of the scriptures, here's Pastor Leland Acker. As we continue our journey through the Bible, I would like to invite your attention today to Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we are going to look at a passage of scripture that often gets overlooked. Oftentimes, when people think about going through the Bible, they start in the creation, then there's the creation of man and God's plan for man, what God wanted man to do, and then there's the fall of man, where man ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and sinned against God, and thus was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You go from there to Noah and the flood and the ark and the theological significance of that, and if you're just hitting the high points of Scripture, the temptation is to go straight from the account of Noah to skip through the genealogy of Genesis chapters 10 and 11 and go straight into the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And that's a big temptation when you're reading through the Bible because I understand that it's difficult to just continue reading verses like, and Mizoram begat Luadim and Anamim and Lehabim and Neptomim and, and all these different uh, weird names that are hard to say even for somebody who's been to seminary and studied these things. And to just keep reading that so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. But if you take your time to read through the genealogies, such as the one contained at the end of Genesis chapter 4, or the ones contained in Genesis chapter 5, and then here we are in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, and there's more genealogies there. If you take the time to read through the genealogies, there are messages that are embedded in the genealogies, and you don't have to be an expert on the meanings of the names and the meanings of the Hebrew words and all that to get those messages. They're not hidden, they're embedded. You see that as it lists the generations and as it lists those who were head of these families throughout the generations, every now and then it'll tell you a detail about one or two of them. And when it tells you the details about those, uh, those individuals, you learn some spiritual lessons from that, from the scriptures. So all scripture has value, even the genealogies. And so if you take the time to read through the genealogies, you learn even more than that you would if you just skipped over them and went from one famous Bible story to another. And so in the spirit of doing that, I want to look at Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Now, don't worry, we're not going to sit here and read genealogies for the next 30 minutes, but I just want to point out a couple of things to you here. Genesis chapter 10, we're going to look in verses 8 through 10 in Genesis chapter 10, and then we'll flip over to Genesis chapter 11, and we'll read the first nine verses over there, okay? So Genesis chapter 10 is where we are. Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, uh, the Bible says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Calneh and the land of Shinar. Okay, so there you have another example of you have some begatting going on. And in verse 8, Cush begat Nimrod. And the Bible tells us about Nimrod. Takes a moment and gives us a snapshot of Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. 
and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So we get the idea that Nimrod here was a pretty important fella. So we go over to chapter 11 and we find out what it is that Nimrod did. Because the Bible says in Genesis 10.10 that the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. Chapter 11 tells us about Babel. So let's look at what happened in Babel with the beginning of the kingdom of Nimrod. In Genesis chapter 11 verse 1, the Bible says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So you look at what's happening here in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Noah and his family had come off the ark, and this had happened uh, possibly a couple of hundred years ago, um, and they began to replenish the earth. Okay, so Noah and his sons come off of the ark, and Noah's sons and their wives begin to have children. They begin to intermarry and have children. And so what you wind up having is, once again, mankind is reproducing and multiplying and replenishing the earth. And over a period of several generations here, we have mankind beginning to reorganize and to and to organize into societies and a civilization. You have a great civilization that's building here. They are developing technology again. Maybe they are redeveloping technology that they had before the flood. They're beginning to learn how to work with metals, how to, how to build with bricks, how to make bricks, how to fasten those bricks or adhere those bricks to each other. And so they're developing archi- architectural advancements and designs and that sort of thing. And so you have this civilization that rises out of Noah's family after he comes off of the ark after the flood. And then as we get to Genesis chapters 10 and 11, an empire begins to develop. And like many empires in the history of the world, this one was built by a strong ruler. And that strong ruler was revealed to us in Genesis chapters 10 and Genesis chapter 10 verses 8 through 10. That strong ruler is Nimrod. Nimrod was described in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 10 as a mighty one in the earth. So he was a mighty one. He was a strong one. He was a conqueror. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that shows us about his ability to provide. And the one that can provide will oftentimes be the one that becomes the leader. And so Nimrod's kingdom began in Babel, as it tells us in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. And so Nimrod built a kingdom that would become strong, that would become powerful, that people would flock to, that people wanted to be a part of. And he built a kingdom that would ultimately try to reach into the heavens. 
And so when we talk about reaching into the heavens, we're not talking about shooting for the stars and high expectations and, and dreams and hopes and that sort of thing. We're, when Nimrod's kingdom tried to reach into the heavens, what they're trying to do is they're trying to build a tower that'll reach into heaven so that they can go into heaven without having to go through God first. And so what you have there is an invasion. And so God responds to that. And we'll learn about what that means for us as we go forward in this study. So we're looking at, in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, this is the famous account of the building of the Tower of Babel. And it's interesting that Babel was so named because that's where the languages were confounded. That's why we wound up with different languages on the earth, and it's called Babel. It goes to show that that term babbling, and I can't stand all this crazy babble, uh, actually transcends language barriers. Everybody has to deal with Babel. And that all goes back to Genesis chapter 11. So it's interesting to see how things that we still deal with today, how those roots came out of the book of Genesis. That's why the book of Genesis is named Genesis. The word Genesis means beginnings. And so here we have the beginning of the different languages and the different kingdoms and the divisions within the world. And it all came because the one kingdom that arose out of the descendants of Noah decided to stand against God. And so in the building of the Tower of Babel, we first of all see the character of their leader, Nimrod. We second of all see their defiance of God. And finally, we see the response of God. So first, let's look at the character of Nimrod. The Bible tells us that he was a valiant warrior. In verse 9, the Bible says, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. That word mighty means valiant, warrior, okay? So he was valiant. He was brave. He was the kind that would run off into battle, and he would be at the front of the line, and he would, he would fight, and he would come away alive. I mean, this was the kind of guy that he was a valiant, it says a mighty hunter, so he's a hunter. This is the guy that would lead the charge toward the woolly mammoth, okay? He was the one who would put himself in harm's way, but always knew how to keep himself from getting killed or wounded in the process. He was mighty. He was strong. He was brave. He was fearless. He was ferocious, and he was valiant. The mighty hunter, that word hunter means provider and protector. So you have a guy that can go face-to-face with a woolly mammoth. You have a guy that can go face-to-face with the large animals that they had at that time and be able to bring that animal down. Uh, That provided food for the people that he took care of, his kingdom, so to speak. And not only did that provide them with food, but if he was able to take on the woolly mammoth, the giant elephant, uh, there are some who believe that there were dragons in the earth in those days. Uh, We would know those as dinosaurs and that uh, the people would have to battle them from time to time, which would explain why you have legends of battling dragons all throughout the world, whether you're talking about England or whether you're talking about ancient China. There's legends surrounding dragons in all of those places. Um, It would explain it. Anyway, you know, you have a guy here that's able to battle these large animals and bring them down to be able to bring about the food that they offer. I mean, you look at here in, uh, in the western United States and the legacy of the buffalo and how the Comanches hunted the buffalo and how the Native Americans hunted the buffalo and the level of valiancy you needed for that because they, they didn't have high-powered rifles, at least not until the settlers came and did some trading with them. They had to, they had to be skillful because just a little arrow is not going to bring down a buffalo either. You ha- it took a coordinated effort, and it took uh, the braves and the, 
and the warriors of the Comanche tribes putting themselves in harm's way to bring these buffalo down so that they could utilize their their meat and, and the resources, their skins and, and all of those things in order to be able to live off of. And so the same guy who can battle that buffalo or, or back in Nimrod's day could battle that woolly mammoth. Uh, the same guy is the guy that can battle off an invading army. And so he was a mighty hunter. He was a valiant, brave warrior who could provide for his people and who could protect his people. And so he became a strong leader. He was also a conqueror. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8 tells us that Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. That word mighty one, you translate that, it means strong. It means tyrant. So not only was he strong, not only was he able in battle, not only could he win battle, not only could he have successful hunts, but he was also a tyrant. He was a powerful leader, a strong leader, and it was his way or the highway. He, he didn't lead by permission. He led by force and practicality. And so if anybody stood against him, chances were it was not going to end well for them. And so Nimrod takes on this power. He takes on this strength. He takes on these victories. He takes on this responsibility, and he begins a kingdom. And the building of his kingdom began in the city of Babel. And so they get, and that becomes his headquarters. It becomes his capital. It becomes the center of his operation. And so you begin to see his kingdom build there. But there's something else we need to know about Nimrod. And that is that not only was he a valiant hunter, a strong fighter, a, a capable hunter, one who could provide for and protect his people and one who was a strong-willed, headstrong leader, but he was also and this happens to go with this type of personality, he was also rebellious against God. Nimrod. The name Nimrod means rebellion. And Nimrod, being the leader of his kingdom, wasn't rebelling against his kingdom. Nimrod, being the leader of his kingdom, was rebelling against God. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's what the Bible tells us in Genesis 10, 9. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That word before means in front of or in the face of. And so he was a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord. And so what this is picturing, what this is showing is that as Nimrod was hunting and as Nimrod was battling and as Nimrod was doing his thing, he wasn't doing so to honor and glorify God. He was doing so to show God how good he could be without him. And he was doing so in the face of God. In other words, Nimrod would have lined up his infantries in opposition against God. Okay, this guy was rebellious against God. So with Nimrod, you have all the makings of a disaster. He's prideful. He's a conqueror. He's a tyrant. He rebels against God. And this is the type of pride that precedes a fall. And so we have to look within our own hearts because it's easy for us to think that we have to be the ones to overcome. It's easy for us to be the conquerors. It's easy for us to think that it's all up to us. In fact, I was in a job interview one time and the guy who was interviewing me for this job said, he gave me a saying, he said, if it is to be, it's up to me. And, and I'm going to tell you for many years, I took that with me and I, and I took that with me into other positions and I took that attitude with me, unfortunately, into my ministerial work and that cost me dearly. The idea that it's up to me, the idea that I do it, the idea that I conquer, all right, that's pride. And when that I do it, I conquer, I overcome, I accomplish, I did this, uh, when that becomes prideful 
and you get to thinking that you did that apart from God, you get to thinking that you don't need God, then that leads to rebellion against God. And when that leads to rebellion against God, then that leads to your rejection of God. And that ends in your destruction each and every time. The Bible tells us that pride goeth before the fall. And so in Genesis chapter 11, we're going to see the fall that Nimrod's going to endure. But before that fall happened, there was pride. So as we look at the character of Nimrod and his leadership, and of course, people tend to take on the character of their leaders. And of course, at the same time, their leaders tend to be a reflection of them. So consider that as we go forward in the political process over the next several years here in the United States. Um, The people take on the characteristics of the leader. And so what we see happening in Nimrod's kingdom there at Babel is we see defiance and transgression against God. And so we flip over to Genesis chapter 11 and we look in verse four, the Bible says, and they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They were commanded to be fruitful. They were commanded to multiply. They were commanded to replenish the earth. That commandment was given by God in Genesis chapter nine, verse one. So what Noah and his sons were commanded after they left the ark was to go out, to spread out, to have children and grandchildren and have them spread out and replenish the earth and to subdue the earth and to conquer the earth and to cultivate the earth. That's what they were commanded to do. But instead, they stood together here in the land of Shiner, which, by the way, biblical scholars among us will tell us that the land of Shiner is modern-day Iraq. And Babel is not far removed from Babylon, which is not far removed from modern-day Baghdad, okay? And so for, for some reason, the country of Iraq, the land of Shiner, becomes throughout the entire human history, becomes the capital of the anti-God movement, whatever form that takes on. You had the idolatry of the Babylonians that took the Israelites into captivity. You have the Medes and the Persians, they headquartered there. You have uh, the prophecy in the book of Zechariah that says that he would take all the false religion and to the land of Shinar make a home for it there. And we see that uh, that particular area is what ISIS is after. Uh, ISIS is after Syria and ISIS is after a pretty good chunk of Iraq. And what they're wanting to do is establish the Islamic caliphate there, okay? And so you're, see, you're seeing these things develop. And now I don't know if that's going to be the final stand that brings in the return of Christ and the ultimate battle between God and Satan and sin and, and, and all that. But you, you see the shadows of this happening over and over again. For some reason, Babel, Babylon, Shiner, Iraq tends to be the epicenter, ground zero for the spiritual battle that is happening in the world with Israel being the, the battlefront that God sets up. And so it's an interesting thing that you see happen throughout the entire Bible. And then you look at the history of mankind after the completion of the Bible and you see how all that works. It's interesting how that all develops. But anyway, so you have this kingdom developing around Babel. And they're supposed to spread out and go replenish the earth, but they don't want to. They want to gather in Babel. They want to gather in the land of Shinar and they want to have a strong kingdom there. And not only do they want to have a strong kingdom there, but they want to have a strong kingdom that stands against God. And so they decide to build a great city and a high tower that would reach into heaven. And that's exactly what they said in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. 
And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And so they're going to stand together and they're going to stand against God and they're going to build a tower into heaven. Now this is not just a tall tower, but it's a tower that want that they want to reach into heaven. They are wanting to encroach into God's heaven. They are wanting to go into heaven. They want to reach into heaven. They want to enter heaven and they want to do so without being brought in by God's grace. Bible tells us that's impossible, but they're going to try this. And so this is not only defiance and rebellion against God, it's an insurrection and it's an invasion. And the Bible tells us that this is impossible. And we know that this project is going to end in disaster because we know how God works. Psalm 24 verses three through five say, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So Psalm 24 asks a question, who will enter the Lord's heaven? And Psalm 24 answers that question. The man with clean hands, that means he's performed no sin. The man with a pure heart, that means he has no sin in his heart. The man who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, that means, vanity means emptiness, okay? To lift up your soul to emptiness means to worship something that is empty. Okay, so this man has not committed idolatry. This man doesn't worship idols. And the man who has not been deceitful. So who meets this qualification? Jesus Christ. He's the only one of us outside of those who are received by God's grace to ascend into heaven on his terms. The rest of us go in by God's grace. Who meets the qualification? Jesus Christ. How do the rest of us get into the Lord's kingdom? How do the rest of us uh, ascend into the hill of the Lord? We do so by God's grace, by receiving his righteousness from him. How do we receive the righteousness of God? We have faith in him. Romans chapter four, verse three tells us, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. There is no other way. Salvation, entering the Lord's kingdom, going into heaven, comes from repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Each man has a choice. The choice is to continue in rebellion against God, trying to reach heaven his own way, or to repent to surrender to God and trust him and to receive his righteousness. Some decide to continue in rebellion against God, trying to reach heaven their own way. They try to continue life without repenting of sin and living life in rebellion against God. To expect God to bless you as you continue to live your own way and as you continue to defy his word is rebellion against him. And to expect that God will bless you as you rebel against him is to expect something that will never happen. That path leads to destruction each and every time. The other choice is to repent, to turn from sin, to surrender to God, to trust him for salvation and to receive his righteousness. To turn from sin. Everybody loves to talk about the woman taken in adultery and how Jesus gave her a free pass, how Jesus forgave her, how Jesus refused to condemn her. You remember that? John chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees have brought her to Jesus, thrown her down on the ground there in front of him and said, listen, this woman was taken in the act of adultery. The law says she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus, you know, writes in the dirt. And they say, hey, did you hear us? He continues writing in the dirt. We don't know what he's writing in the dirt, but he's writing in the dirt. And Jesus turns around and says, let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. 
and nobody could cast the first stone because they all had sin within them as well. Then Jesus looked at her and said, woman, where are your accusers? Does no man condemn you? And she goes, no man, my Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And so Jesus didn't condemn her. He showed grace. He showed forgiveness. He showed mercy. But at the same time, he told her to go and sin no more. A 21st century Baptist preacher would say, repent. Fleeing the wrath of God means fleeing from sin because sin is the target of God's wrath. And so the decision that one must make in order to be received into God's kingdom and to his heaven is to repent from sin, to turn from sin, and to trust the Lord, to ask his forgiveness, to trust him to give it, to know that his death paid for your sin. When this happens, the Lord cleanses you and credits you with his righteousness. And so we see what's happening in this kingdom of Babel, okay? These people are gathering together in opposition and defiance against God. They're building a great city to show what they can build without God. Now they're going to build a tower to reach up into heaven so that they can enter into God's throne room, whether he wants them to or not, all right? That's defiance and rebellion against God. And so God responds in Genesis chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. The Lord says, go to. Let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. God stopped the rebellion by scrambling their languages. And when their languages were scrambled, and all of a sudden, nobody's speaking the same language, but everybody has different languages. They quit building because they couldn't communicate with each other. They left, they went forth, they multiplied, and they replenished the earth. God guided them toward obedience. God in his grace doesn't always hit us with wrath and judgment and destruction. God in his grace does things to guide us toward obedience. He changes situations in our lives to force us to make decisions either for him or against him. So he forces us to make the decisions and whether we decide for him or against him is our choice. What we decide determines our blessing or it determines our punishment. God wants us to make good decisions so we can receive his blessing and so he does things in our lives to steer us toward making those good decisions. And that's what Romans chapter 8 verse 28 tells us. Um, when the Bible says, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are the called according to his purpose. If you keep reading in verses 29 and 30 in Romans chapter 8, you'll see that God predestines us and therefore he guides us and therefore he pulls out the stops and makes things happen in our lives to guide us to repentance, to guide us to faith, to guide us to those good decisions, to bring us into a place of repentance and faith and obedience. And so therefore God would be able to bless us. That's what God does for us. And that's what God did with the Tower of Babel. He confounded their languages so that they would leave off building the tower. The Bible doesn't say that God destroyed the tower and killed a bunch of people. The Bible tells us that God confounded their language and they left off building the tower. God changes things supernaturally in our lives to bring us to the point that we make the decision that we need to repent or we need to obey. Either that or we're going to continue to defy him, which in doing that, we're only solidifying our destruction before him. And so we look at Nimrod and we look at this kingdom that he builds in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. And we see that Nimrod was a prideful, mighty, powerful, valiant hunter and warrior who stood in direct opposition of the God of God. 
And we see that that didn't necessarily work out well for him. All right. And so the alternative is to be submissive to God, to love God, to obey God, to trust him and to repent or turn from the things that get in the way of our relationship with him. The fact of the matter is when we go through life on a daily basis, we're always choosing in every decision we make. We are making a choice. We either choose to submit to the Lord and trust him or we choose to rebel against him. There's an ultimate choice that we make when it comes to salvation. There's a time that we come to a point of decision where we decide whether we are going to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, whether we're going to reject him. If that choice is on your heart, make the decision to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Turn from your sins and trust him as your Savior. And trust him to receive you into his heaven. Do not decide against that. Do not decide to put that choice off because if you decide to put that choice off, you're deciding not to decide, which means you're deciding not to accept the Lord as your Savior. Be saved today. And throughout the rest of your life, make those choices on a daily basis. Am I going to honor God with this or am I going to glorify myself? It's been a pleasure studying with you today. Hope you join us uh, next time. You can find more information, point2life.wordpress.com. Thank you and may God bless you on this wonderful day. You've been listening to The Point, the radio show that explores the Bible, studies its meaning, and affirms your faith with solid Bible teaching. The Point is a radio ministry of Grace Point Missionary Baptist Church, which meets for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m., at the Early Chamber of Commerce, 104 East Industrial Drive in Early, just off Highway 377, next to Pate's Hardware. Mail to P.O. Box 3134, Early, Texas, 76803. May God bless you and thank you for listening.